grab your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, which I'm real excited about, and it will take us through the fall and even on into the new year. We'll take a few breaks here and there so that we don't tune out its message, because it has a very important message for us. And so normally we'll be in the middle of 2 Corinthians in the, in the details, but today we're actually just going to set the table. Who are the Corinthians? What was their story? Why are they important? Why do they have a book of the Bible named after them? Not just one, but actually two. What was their relationship with the Apostle Paul? Who are the Corinthians, what was going on in their lives. Those are the things we'll concern ourselves with today. So we'll start in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in just a second. When I was in my early 20s, I was invited to come and work on a, ch- a church staff up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, this was uh, uh, the kind of church where whether you were the, the most significant, you were the senior pastor, or you were the least significant, which was the role that I was actually coming to play, the whole church had to vote and decide if they wanted you to come and, and work for them. And, and so on this one particular Sunday, Amanda and I drove up to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and, and the, the pastor brought us up on stage, and we had met a few people already. And, and he said, this is Curtis and Amanda Jones. Curtis is going to come work for us. We're very excited. Uh, this is his qualifications. This is what he's done before. Here's the role he's going to play for our church. And they let us out of the auditorium and then they voted. It's kind of weird to know that just a few doors down, people are deciding whether you are good or bad. And, and they lead us back into the, the sanctuary, the auditorium, and everyone is standing and applauding. And so we took that as our sign as a, you know, we passed, we made it. We were going to be now employees of this church and be, uh, I was going to be one of the ministers. Uh, so we move up to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Two weeks later, they were actually bringing another man onto the church staff. And so we had to go through the whole uh, routine again. The church had to vote. Uh, this man had actually grown up in the church and had played uh, almost every role that you could imagine in his life in the church. He had been the leader of different committees and just a very Im- important person in the history of this church. But now the pastor wanted to bring him on to be a paid employee of the church on the church staff. And, and so uh, worship happens. And, you know, it's, it's a normal normal Sunday, but it's kind of different. I don't know if you've been in a, a situation like that where everything looks normal, but you can tell something is different. There was just some electricity in the air and it was way more crowded than it was normally uh, in the, you know, the experience that we had had, which was just two weeks, not very much. And, and so I knew something, something different was, was going to happen this morning. After the pastor's sermon was over, it was time to vote. And so he brings the man and his wife up onto the stage. And he does the same whole routine that he did with us and explains who he, who he is and what his qualifications are. And then they lead them out of the sanctuary and it's time to vote. Now, this was a Baptist church and Baptists got their specific lingo. And in a Baptist church, when you vote on things, usually if it's a real Baptist church, uh, the pastor will say, all in favor, say aye. And that's your cue as a good Baptist to raise your hand and say aye. And so it came time to vote for this man. And so the pastor says, all in favor for this man coming to work on our church staff, uh, raise your hand and say aye. And so most of the church raised their hand and said aye. But then the Baptists, they got to say all opposed. Because you can't be a good Baptist without saying all opposed. And this is your opportunity to say, no, I don't think that this is a good decision. Now, just a frame of reference. When they were voting on uh, me and Amanda to come uh, and move up there, um, it was unanimous except for one man. And he voted no. Turns out he didn't even really care about us. He didn't know us. He didn't know our story. He didn't know anything about us. But he was mad at the senior pastor. And so to embarrass the senior pastor, he voted no when everyone else voted yes. And so it was a very generous, nice church. And so the pastor says two weeks later when we're voting this other guy in, all opposed. And hands start shooting up. And you hear echoing around the room. Opposed, 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 opposed. Now, it's not a lot of hands. But it was some hands. But it was clear that... The majority of the church, 90% of the church, wanted this man to come and work 
for the church, but a few didn't. So I'll never forget, a couple rows behind me, this man stands up. I had never seen him, you know, in the two weeks that we had been there, which is not very, saying very much. I hadn't seen a lot of people. He stands up and he takes a few steps towards the stage and he points his finger at the pastor and he starts screaming, you are going to bring this church down. And he turns around and he storms out. And when he does, about 20 or 25 other people stand up and they storm out the back. We have been there two weeks. Two. This was my second Sunday. And I remember thinking to myself, what have we gotten ourselves into here? If you've been around church for a while, maybe you grew up at church, that probably doesn't even sound that odd to you. In fact, you may have a story that's even worse than that. See, that's the thing about church is we like for churches and we like for church people to be perfect and things happen here that are totally appropriate and no one ever gets bent out of shape and always and everyone always does the right thing. But that's not true, is it? No, in fact, all of us this morning, we have experienced the best the church has to offer and we have experienced the worst the church has to offer. We have experienced the beauty and the ugliness. We have experienced the glory and the shame of the church. Now, when we say church this morning, we're talking about our church, Bayou City Fellowship, but we're talking more than our church. We're talking about every church in the city of Houston that claims the true name of Jesus, the Son of God, as he's revealed in the Word of God. And every church like that in Texas and in America, uh, the United States and around the world, we are the church together and all of us have experienced both blessing and pain at the hands of other Christians. So what should we do? It seems odd to join an organization, a group of people who you know from the very beginning are both going to bless you and hurt you. Should we just wash our hands of this whole thing? Say, you know what, I'm going to keep my relationship with God just personal, me and him, me and Jesus. Should we give up? Should we walk away? Or should we do something different? The Corinthians are actually going to lead us to that answer this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have some free ones out there, and I and meant to say this. Um, also, this would be a great time to get a new Bible in case any of you need an excuse to get a new Bible. We're starting a new series, going to work our way through 2 Corinthians. So if you need an excuse for your wife to get you a new Bible, today is the day. 2 Corinthians chapter Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a phrase in there, I think, that summarizes what we're talking about this morning. That both in the church is beauty and ugliness. We can bless and we can cause pain. Paul says it like this, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. The church of God. When it comes to the church, there's something holy about it. There's something sacred about it. There's something special about it. It's, it's from a different realm. It, it plays by a different set of rules and, and it operates itself differently. It's unique. It's holy. It's set apart. It's the church of God. But it's at Corinth. Corinth was a real place with real people, with real temptations, with real issues, with real history. 
The church is at the same time both of another world and of this world. It's heavenly, and yet we live in a very real earth. That's why we get the mixture of the glory and the shame, the beauty and the ugliness, the blessing and the pain. Corinth was a coastal city in Greece. It was a very popular city. It actually had two harbors, and so many trade routes ran through Corinth. If you were a sailor in those days in the first century, and you were sailing around the Mediterranean, you were probably going to make a stop in Corinth. Because it had two harbors and was on some major trade routes, uh, it was a very wealthy city. It was also a very religious city, of course. They had Greek gods and goddesses in the first century, and so Corinth had many different temples to many different gods, but their crowning jewel was on top of a mountain that overlooked the city of Corinth. That mountain kind of had a flat a flat top, and on that flat top, on that mountain that overlooked Corinth, they built the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And so all day long, people going up and making their offerings to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And because it was a port city, it had port morality. You can imagine the kinds of businesses that popped up with sailors coming in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out all the time. In fact, in Greek plays around that time, a Corinthian was one of two things, a prostitute or a drunk. So in the first and second century, this is what the people of Europe and that part of the world, Asia Minor, thought of the Corinthians. When we're going to represent you, you are going to be a prostitute or a drunk. That's the city that we're talking about today. In AD 49, the Apostle Paul begins his second missionary journey. That's the way the Apostle Paul would work. He kind of had a home base. It started out at a place called Antioch. And from Antioch, he would travel around with his small group. And they would go from city to city to city to city, preaching the gospel and starting churches. And so he does it one round. That's his first missionary journey. He comes back, he rests for a while, and then he goes out for a second missionary journey. And on that second missionary journey, he revisits some of the churches that he had started on his first missionary journey, but he also goes to some new places and then he ends up in the city of Corinth. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 18 that Apostle Paul actually was kind of intimidated when he came into Corinth. It was a a, a mega city at the time. It was a wealthy city. It was kind of the worst of both worlds. It had a lot of wealthy people in it, but it also had a lot of low morality, hard people, sailors coming in and out. It was kind of a hard place to have a hearing for the gospel. And just like you and I would be, he was a little nervous about walking in there and preaching about Jesus. In fact, he's so nervous that Jesus himself speaks to Paul in Acts chapter 18. He says, I don't want you to be afraid anymore. I have many people in this city. You're going to be safe and fine. So Apostle Paul does. He fearlessly and boldly preaches the gospel in Corinth. And just like every time the gospel is presented, some people reject it, some people ignore it, and some people receive it. And enough people received the gospel in Corinth, the good news that Jesus has come to save sinners like you and I, that they started a church. Paul stayed with them for 18 months. Just to give you a frame of reference, if we were Corinth, Paul would still be with us. We're not even 18 months old yet. And so he stays with them for 18 months, and then he moves on to the next city. He gets down the road a little ways and he decides to write the Corinthians a letter just to check in. That was the way he communicated with his churches. That's why we have the epistles in the New Testament. These are letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to these churches that he helped start or he helped minister to. 
And so he writes the Corinthians letter just to check in. They write him a letter back with a lot of questions. You can imagine being a, a brand new Christian, but you grew up in a place like Corinth with all kinds of gods and goddesses and all kinds of different um, rules about morality. And here comes the Apostle Paul preaching about Jesus, who was a Jewish person. And the Jewish people had all these laws in the Old Testament. It could kind of be a confusing thing. If you've grown up in church, you take that for granted. And so they had a lot of questions. And so they write Paul a long letter with a, a lot of questions that they want for him to answer questions about doctrine, questions about what's going to happen after they die, questions about their morality now that they're Christians. So Paul writes them a letter back. We call that letter 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is doing two things. He's answering their questions and he's correcting them about some of the things that he's heard that have been going on in their church, things that are not good. And that's where we get the letter of 1 Corinthians. We'll look at it in just a second. So about uh, sometime in the next year, you know, Paul had written them about some of their issues. And it turns out that they didn't do anything about it. They didn't change. They were still kind of living a life that really didn't line up with the gospel that he had preached to them. And so he makes a painful visit. Anybody ever made a painful visit to you? Isn't that the worst? So Paul makes a painful visit to Corinth. It's short. It's sweet. It's for one purpose. This is what you believe. This is what you're doing. They don't go together. You ever tried to fix a problem with a friend, but as you started fixing it, it only made it worse? You started talking about your issues, but then like you realized you had a bunch more issues that you didn't even know about. You were trying to deal with one problem. Turns out you had 30 problems. Well, that's what happened to Paul when he went to Corinth for this painful visit. It didn't fix anything. It just kind of stirred everything up and even made it worse. And so we know uh, from 2 Corinthians that he writes them a harsh letter. Wouldn't you hate to be the Corinthians? First you get a painful visit. Now you get a harsh letter. Again, short, sweet, to the point. This is what you believe. This is how you're living. They're not the same. You have to change. Paul sends that harsh letter with one of his sons in the faith, Titus. He's kind of nervous. Are they going to receive Titus? Are they still mad at me because of the painful visit? Are they going to receive my son in the faith, my ambassador, my representative? Are they going to change? Well, it turns out they do. Titus comes back to Paul, says they received your letter. They've changed. They believe in you. They're, they're, they're going to follow the things that you're doing. And so in response, Paul writes 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is the last correspondence that we see that the Apostle Paul has with the, Corinth, uh, the Corinthians. A lot of issues in Corinth. A lot of back and forth. Their church was mixed up and messed up. I want to show you some of their issues this morning, just in case you might feel bad about some of your issues. Their issues are worse, I promise. Turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 12. One of their issues is that they're divided. They're not unified. They've kind of formed factions and clubs Look at verse 12 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, what had happened was, you know, the Corinthians... Their pastors would come in, but then they would leave. They would leave to go and start other churches. And so you've got all these different people in the church who have came to Christ under different uh, teaching and have learned to be Christians from other teachers. And, and, and so Paul comes in, he starts the church. And, and, and so some people in the church are like, hey, I was here when Paul was here. 
I mean, Paul, you know, Paul, the one we got a picture of him out in the, the lobby that Paul, the one that started this thing. I was here when Paul was here. I heard from Paul's lips what it meant to be a Christian. And other people were like, no, I was here when Apollos came. Apollos was a great orator, a great speaker, the Bible tells us. And I was here when Apollos was here. And that's when I believed in Jesus, when Apollos preached the gospel. He's the one who taught me to be a Christian. I don't know, Paul. I know I heard Paul wasn't even a good speaker, but Apollos, man, he was the best. He, his mouth was just was like gold came out of his mouth. I'm, I'm, I'm an Apollos man. I'm an Apollos woman. Some people are like, I'm a Cephas. And I don't know anybody wants to be a Cephas man or woman. Cephas is another name for Peter. And so it's talking about Jesus, his disciple Peter, the apostle Peter. And they're like, no, I heard the gospel from Peter. Peter, Paul, Paul wasn't a disciple of Jesus. Apollos wasn't a, a disciple of Jesus. Peter, he was a disciple of Jesus. He actually walked with Jesus. I'm a Peter person. Then you got the super spiritual people. They're like, I'm not Paul. And I'm not Apollos. And I'm not Peter. I'm Jesus. I'm a Jesus person. And they didn't mean it in a good way. Like we should all be Jesus people. They thought, oh, I'm going to be better than you. I'm going to be more righteous than you. I'm going to take the road higher than you. I'm not going to bother with any human teachers. I'm just going to be a Jesus person. So you've got this church divided already. It's brand new. Just a few years old. And it's already divided. But that's not their only issue. In fact, their issues get worse. Turn to uh, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. There was some serious immorality going on in the Corinthian church. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. What he's saying is the kind of immorality you're allowing to happen in this church doesn't even happen out in the world with people who don't believe in Jesus. People who do all kinds of perverse worship towards their gods and goddesses, they don't even do the kinds of things that you're allowing in this church. That someone has his father's wife. Now, most biblical scholars believe what has happened is a, a son has stolen his stepmother from his father. And the church is not doing anything about it. In fact, they're just fine with it. Look what it says in verse 2. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So you have a man who has stolen his father's wife and the church is just like, well, that's... All right. I mean, it's not what I would do, but I guess that's fine. In public view of everyone, it's almost as if they've accepted it. I want you to turn a few pages over to just look at uh, chapter 6. We'll actually, we'll read chapter 6, a few verses in chapter 6. They're also suing one another. Wouldn't you like to go to this church? Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brother? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. So they're, they're having disputes and instead of just working them out in a peaceful way in the church, 
having another church person who is wise help uh, decide between them. They're rushing and taking each other to court and suing one another. And the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, we have enough wise people in the church to handle this. And you're just making us look bad. You're going before unbelievers. You're ruining the name of the church. First Corinthians seven. We won't read it because it's the whole chapter. First Corinthians seven tells us that their marriages are falling apart. And so he has to spend a whole chapter telling them to stay married. Then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They were getting drunk when they would take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. Meaning... You're not serving anyone. You're not being kind to one another. You're just, you're just taking what you want because you're, you're hungry, I guess. And one is hungry and another is drunk. Verse 22. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. You imagine how mixed up and messed up your church would have to be when you come to remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that you would use it as an opportunity to get drunk. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The Apostle Paul gives a lengthy a lengthy teaching on their spiritual gifts. God has given every follower of Jesus a spiritual gift, a gift, a talent, an ability which he will empower so that you can use it to build the church and to reach the world around us for the name of Jesus. Every person has a spiritual gift. You know what the Corinthians did? They tried to determine which were the most important gifts. And then they started ranking themselves. Well, you have that gift, but I have this gift. My gift is a little bit better. It's a little bit more important. It's a little bit more out front. It's a little bit more supernatural. So I'm more important than you. This is a mixed up, messed up church. They're divided. They're drunk. They're immoral. They're suing one another. Mixed up, messed up, out of whack. You know why? It's not because the Corinthians were so terrible. They didn't care for Jesus. It's that they were humans. It's the same reason most churches are filled with mixed up, messed up people and issues. Because churches are filled with humans. And all humans are hypocrites. Every human. I remember when I was younger, I would be telling, uh, you know, talking to somebody about faith and, and you know, sharing my faith and, and all that. And, and, and somebody would always bring up, the, well, the church is filled with hypocrites. I would believe in Jesus, but, you know, the people who represent him are real hypocritical. They say one thing and they do another. And, and when I was younger, I would, I didn't know what to do with that because, I, like, technically that's true. You know, I mean, that's true for me and it was true for the other people I knew. And so I really didn't know what to say. And I was afraid that if I went like, yeah, I agree with you. Don't tell anybody. We're trying to keep a good thing going. They would be like, well, I'm not going to believe in Jesus then. But after a while, it just 
I just saw it clearly. Yeah, the church is filled with hypocrites. Because the church is filled with human beings and all human beings are hypocrites, not just in religious matters. You know, the green people, I don't know if any of you are green people. Praise God for you. You're saving the world for the rest of us who are just waiting for something big to happen, I guess. Uh, you know, the, the green people, the green people are always green. You know, they have plastic in their house. You know where plastic comes from? Petroleum. They don't get petroleum from plants, or at least not plants that have been around, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. You know, uh, green people are hypocrites. The, the, the Whole Foods people, you know, the foodies, like the, 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 that, the organic, you know, thing. You ever meet somebody who's all up on organic? I'm just like, I love McDonald's. I'll just tell you right now, I love McDonald's. There ain't one thing about organic about McDonald's. Not even the apples that they give away and the kids' meals are organic. And I don't even care. It's good. It tastes good. I'm just living for the moment. But some of you may be like that, right? Some of you may be like that. You're into the food stuff. You're a hypocrite too. Not every meal, everything that they put in their mouth is totally organic, came from the earth. You know, music snobs. You ever meet a music snob? Aren't they the worst? Even music snobs like a Justin Bieber song every now and then. You, know? you hardcore country music fans, George Strait all the way. You like Taylor Swift? Admit it. Admit it. You do. We're all hypocrites. We all say one thing and do another. And you know what? That's the gospel. The gospel, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that what we needed to do, we couldn't do. And so Jesus came to save us. So now when I meet somebody who's like the church is filled with hypocrites, I say, yeah, it is. Praise God that it is because the difference between the church and the rest of the world is we just already admitted that we don't always do what we need to do, but we fall into the grace of God when it happens. So yeah, the church in Corinth, it's mixed up and it's messed up. I mean, a fraternity in college would not want to be labeled with the things that the Corinthians were doing, let alone a church. But yet Paul, he perseveres with them. Paul doesn't give up on them. In fact, I want to show you uh, first, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is where Paul had a good handle on who the Corinthians were. They were... At Corinth, in a real place, in real time, with real temptations, with real issues, filled with real people. But they were also the church of God. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, it says... Excuse me, Allison. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints... By calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So this is the same letter, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, where we have just seen Paul address their divisions, their incest, uh, their drunkenness, their suing one another, their arrogance. In that same letter, which he is addressing all of those issues, he says at the very beginning, saints, holy ones. Set apart by God, for God. If you were writing that letter, would, 
Would you have labeled the Corinthians as saints? No. To the horrible people who are at Corinth. To the unfaithful at Corinth. To the cowardly at Corinth. To the, to the, the people who lack self-control at Corinth. Now the church of God, the saints who are at Corinth. So somehow in the midst of all of the Apostle Paul's issues that he's having to deal with with the Corinthians and all of their sin and all of their shame and all of the harm that they are doing, he is still able to see clearly the church of God. He actually got that from Jesus. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 is a famous passage which you probably heard at a few weddings here and there. It's talking about the relationship between a husband and wife. Verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, this is why you don't parachute out of your marriage. Because your marriage, in your marriage, you and Jesus are connected. And Jesus didn't parachute out of the church. So I don't care if you're not feeling it right now. I don't care if it's not the same as it was. I don't care if the grass looks greener on the other side. I don't care if you have already lined up an exit strategy. So that it's best for you and somehow you don't hurt the kids. You do not parachute out of your marriage because you are connected to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he didn't parachute out of his marriage to the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Look at the words to describe Jesus' interaction with the church. But he gave himself up for her. It means to deliver himself. He delivered himself over on behalf of the church. That's the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember God's will was hanging over Jesus. He knew suffering was coming. He knew the cross was coming. But he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's down on his knees in the dirt, sweating drops of blood, asking God, listen, I know this is the way. But if there's any other way, if there's any other way that we can accomplish the goal of saving humanity without the suffering and the shame, can we do it that way? But you know what he says, not what I want what you want. And then the Bible says he gets up. Listen, if people have come to arrest me so that they can beat me, so they can crucify me, they're going to have to catch me. But not Jesus. He gets up. And he walks to meet his mob. Man, think about what kind of strength that took. Think what kind of manliness that took. You've got a mob coming for you with lanterns, torches, weapons, and swords. And you go and meet them. When he gets there, one of his disciples, Peter, pulls out a sword and starts swinging. And Jesus says, this is not how this is going down. Why? Because he delivered himself. He gave himself up 
No one took the Son of God's life. He willingly laid it down. For who? For the church. So that he might sanctify. It means to set apart and make holy. It means that Jesus has taken the church and he set us aside and he said, I'm going to work on you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to clean you. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to heal you. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You know how much Jesus feels about the church? You know how, how much Jesus is for the church today? It says that he's getting us ready. He's purifying us, healing us, making us holy so he can present us as a gift to himself. That's how much Jesus thinks of the church, that he's going to get us ready for himself. That's why today, if, if you feel like you're out of bounds, you know, God may be accepting everybody else in here, but you bringing in a lot of baggage. He could never receive you back. Not after what you've done. You need to know that He is for the church. He is for His people. Jesus is not disillusioned with the church. He's not down and out on the church. He's in process with us and He is invested. You ever ask yourself why? You ever ask yourself why Jesus would persevere with people like you and me? Ephesians chapter 1 says that God has put all things under Jesus' feet, including the church. And I have many times in my life wondered, like, for example, when someone stands up and screams at a pastor after I've been there for two weeks, I've wondered in that moment why Jesus would continue to persevere with us if, in fact, we are under his feet, why he doesn't just stomp us out and start all over. Why would he persevere with us? Keep forgiving. Keep extending grace, even when we don't represent him that well. If you read the Bible from beginning to end, I think the answer is clear. Why God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, why they would persevere with us. Because they want to. I don't know if you were looking for a very complicated religious answer, but when you read the full story of the Bible, that's the message that comes out. Why would a holy God, why would the Holy Son of God who radiates holiness... Right at this very moment is in heaven and has the complete attention of the angelic host. Right now they are singing songs of, wor of worship and praise to him. And all the saints who have gone on before us, your brothers, your sisters, your moms, your dads, your great grandparents, all those who have gone on before us, they're singing his praises right now. So why would he keep persevering with us in all of our frailty and being mixed up and messed up? Why would he do that? Because he wants to. No one is forcing his hand. No man obligates him. He just decided in his heart, I'm going to set my love and my affection on the church. And I'm going to be for them all the days of their lives. So I don't know what you brought in today. You may have brought a first class set of luggage with all the baggage you brought in here today. 
And you might think, why would God ever forgive me? Because he wants to. I've done this before. I've been in and I'm out, in and out, in and out. I've come back to church ten times at least in my adult life. Why would he take me back this time? Because he wants to. He made a promise to his people that he would not abandon us even if we abandon him. Jesus is for the church. And because Jesus was for the church, the Apostle Paul was for the church. And if Jesus is for the church and we follow Jesus, then we should be for the church. All of us have experienced pain at the hands of other Christians. All of us. People who should have known better wounded us, hurt us, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But still, at the end of the day, even for all of our weaknesses, there is nothing on planet Earth like the church of God. I think maybe this past week was, has been my favorite week uh, in our history because uh, Sunday night, Monday night, and Tuesday night, we did a thing called Bayou City Nights. How many of you were able to come, Bayou City Nights? Yeah, it was fantastic. If you uh, missed out on the opportunity, I just want to say to you, not to condemn you, but like you missed it. You just missed it. The window was open and you missed it and now it's closed. I don't know what to tell you other than you missed it and feel a little bit bad. So you come again next year because it was so fantastic. Not to condemn you, by the way, but you should have been there. Um, so Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, uh, we found a field in our neighborhood here and, uh, my, and we did vacation Bible school, but we did it our style, which is we had vacation Bible school, but we took it to the streets. And it was cool to see our kids, neighborhood kids, other neighborhood kids. I mean, it's just amazing. It was just amazing. And had, had hundreds of volunteers. And, you know, especially on Monday and Tuesday, those volunteers weren't just sitting at home. They didn't take vacation to come to Bayou City Nights. And so they worked all day, just like you worked all day and I worked all day. And you know how when you're at work and you're in the flow of your life, you're, you're usually just kind of thinking about you and what's best for you and how you can work situations in your favor and what you have to do. It's just a lot of you, you know, when you're at work and doing your thing during the day. And, and same thing for me. But what was cool is there was this gate in this big field that we were at that you had to walk through. Watching all of our volunteers, you, it was like when they came through that gate, no matter what their day had been like, whether their day had been filled with me, 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 or something else. When you came through the gate, it was just this unspoken thing that happened that said, I'm here and I'm ready to serve and I'm going low. Isn't it beautiful to watch people go low? To just serve anonymously? To say, I'm here. I'm here to serve children. I'm here to serve parents of those children. I'm here to serve other people who are serving. I mean, it was a powerful, powerful thing. And I thought to myself on Tuesday night as we're there. And just such a fantastic, fantastic three days of investing in our neighborhood. I thought to myself, who else is going to do this? What other organization or group of people in the world is going to say, you know what I'm going to do for three nights this week of my busy schedule? I'm going to come and I'm going to go as low as possible. And serve as many people as possible. Nobody does that. The church does that. I heard this week about a couple in our church. Just a normal couple like you and me. Uh, 
And uh, they have, in the last year, met a young woman who has an incredible amount of potential and can really do something significant with her life. The only problem is she graduated from high school, doesn't have the means to get to college. And so she's just unfortunately going to replicate the cycle of poverty that she's been stuck in. And so a couple in our church said, you know what we're going to do? We believe in her. We're going to scholarship her out of our own pocket and send her to college. Who does that? When, when, when they told me about that this week over the phone, I had to think to myself, like, would I do that? A, I don't think I could afford to do that, but even if I could. Who does that? We have more families than I can count in our church who have said, you know, our family in every earthly way is complete. But there are children out there who need moms and dads and brothers and sisters. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to open up our home. We're going to open up our heart. And we're going to bring in other people's children. We're going to foster them. We're going to love them. And we may be even going to adopt them. Who does that? The church does that. Who gives out cups of cold water in Jesus' name? To dry and weary people. The church does that. Who grieves with those who are grieving? Who mourns with those who mourn? The church. Who celebrates with those who celebrate the church? Who rescues little babies from red light districts in India? The church does that. Who sponsors children in El Salvador for $40 a month so that they can get out of their own cycle of poverty? The church does that. Who shows up in hospital rooms and says, I'm praying for you. And I'm going to stand with you in these days. The church does that. Who is there when disaster happens? The church is always the first one there. So I don't know how you've been wounded by the church. And what pain you've been caused by other Christians. All I know today is that Jesus is for the church. And with his power in our sails, there is nothing like it on planet Earth. So let's be the church. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would stir in us today a passion not just for you, but for the things that you love. So help us to be everything that you were dreaming of, Jesus, when you laid down your life, when you delivered yourself over for the church. We want to be that. God, we want to live out the dream that you've had in your heart for your church in our days, in our generation, on our watch. And help us to have affection for your people. God, even when we've experienced pain at their hands, help us. Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself up for us, that you're sanctifying us and you're making us holy. You're making us ready so that we can be presentable to you Make us ready. In Jesus' name.